Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ash Kazarian. On today's show, we have Joe Miller, President and CEO of the Washington Center for Technology Policy and Inclusion. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about a very important and crucial topic in 2020, which is transparency and use of technology by police. I just want to kind of give a high level view of what's happening here. You know, um, and first of all, thanks so much for having me. You know, your podcast started and my podcast started around the same time. So we're the originals here. So it's nice to see Tech Freedoms Tech Policy Podcast still going. But when we talk about kind of the high level concerns here, the biggest concerns, we're talking about law enforcement having the ability to basically modernize what they've always done in our communities in a disproportionate way. Simone Brown, a professor at UT Austin wrote a book called Dark Matters, in which she discusses Jeremy Bentham's panopticon design, which became the model for plantation overseers and then prisons. But we're also talking about other innovations we've seen in which the police disproportionately target Blacks and Latinos in communities like the one I grew up in, right? The Upper West Side was a very different place in the 80s and 90s when I was there, alongside the affluent homes on Central Park West and some of the brown stones on West 96th Street, where I grew up, where people of, people of color, when hip hop was on the rise, girls played double Dutch. You know, this was the precinct where the Central Park Five were picked up a few years after Bernie Getz. And cops were stopping us back then, too. So now we have these technologies coming in, like facial recognition, like body cameras. Sometimes facial recognition and body cameras are put into one, but we'll go for that. And we have a lot of problems with facial recognition too, um, and with body cameras. Um, so let's start with facial recognition. Uh, there have been a lot of studies uh, that have been done that show very clearly that facial recognition is far from perfect, that it uh, profiles and misidentifies people of color, women of color, way more than it does white men. Um, what has been your uh, you know, research and as you've dived into these topics, what have you discovered? Well, you know, to my, to my original point, uh, we, don't, we don't think that these uh, disparities are happening by, happening by accident. Uh, we think they're, that they're either built in deliberately or they're built in as a result of not taking the concerns of civil rights groups seriously over the past many years. We don't see how body cams have proven to be effective. Does that mean they should go away? Not necessarily. I, I haven't seen evidence that it makes them behave worse. I don't think evidence that they don't deter police violence is enough to say that we shouldn't use them anymore. Yeah, I mean, we're worried about white supremacists using these technologies to replace stop and frisk. And, you know, it can generally be thought of as how you know, white supremacists are using algorithms and hardware specifically to carry out and carry forth this agenda they see as their heritage, something to be proud of, symbolized by the Confederate flag and intangible things like the wealth gap and disproportionate incarceration rates, which frankly, we've seen they're proud of. They're proud of those outcomes. And so we're concerned about, techno about technology being used to perpetuate that through the police. What are your thoughts uh, on the responses of some of large tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft on uh, stopping 
uh, selling uh, facial recognition software and products to law enforcement agencies. So I like what IBM has done. IBM has said that they're not going to do facial recognition anymore. Microsoft and Amazon have put their projects on pause until Congress passes some sort of legislation to address facial recognition. So do you think the technology should be completely banned or do you think there can be some checks and balances put on it? Um, what I've been looking into is, you know, um, use of uh, databases with faces only when you have a warrant, for example, right? Um, amplifying and making more sharp the procedures surrounding it. So right now um, there are things like an eyewitness would say, oh, the per alleged perpetrator looked like the actor X, like let's say looked like Liam Nielsen. And then they would literally search the photo. They would take the photo of Liam Nielsen and search the database to see if it pinged anyone. Um, or we should require uh, prosecutors to disclose um, when, you know, the defendant was found and the, investigation was built on a facial recognition database search because they often don't um, and things like that. So it's like due process, checks and balances. Do you think facial recognition as a technology is salvageable? I think facial recognition, perhaps, you know, you have people who are in the courtroom every single day who can say better than I and You know, I think perhaps you may want to have some of those little litigators on your show. But yeah, I'm saying that perhaps it can be used to establish a pattern of conduct, but I don't think they should be used to surveil and identify someone because we just see too much evidence of false identifications without the technology. We haven't even figured that out. And now we see mounting evidence to suggest that facial recognition doesn't identify who it's supposed to identify. It misidentifies members of Congress. It misidentifies sports figures. So there just isn't a basis to move forward with this in any kind of reliable way. And I think that's what folks are having a problem with is that, you know, we're putting the cart before the horse in a sense, because we just don't have the evidence base to do this. We don't have the history to do it. We just don't, there is, it is incredible. What about body cameras? Um, what are the questions that surround the regulation and the use of body cameras by police and also the transparency that is not really granted to us uh, to find out what exactly is going on there? Yeah, so the issue around body cams is whether they're deterring police misconduct. And the original reason why body cams were implemented was to prevent that misconduct. So, I mean, if there, if it's the same thing that I was saying with, you know, the algorithmic and artificial facial recognition being used to identify folks. There's not not enough evidence to ban it, but there's also not enough evidence to support their the way they're being used right now. I don't think we should eliminate body cams simply for the reason that they're used to deter and prevent police misconduct. We saw the evidence of the way uh, the police treated George Floyd prior to his arrest. 
And we, you know, we were able to, it was disseminated and we were able to review that and see how the police in Georgia tend to treat African-Americans. But I don't think that because they're not effective, I don't think that that's a reason to stop using them any more than it's a reason to stop using security cameras on the sidewalk. So you bring up this point that uh, while with body cameras, police is kind of watching us and with facial recognition, we now using, you know, cameras on smartphones are watching the police. Um, can you, do you think that having this technology is going to be, I mean, we've obviously seen how it was a starting point for the conversations that we're having about race and racism in America, right? Those phone recordings were. So do you think that technology in that sense is bringing more transparency and more kind of equalizing the equation? Uh, because, okay, you're watching us, well, we're watching you. And I think the competition there is between the public's right to record the agents of the state they're paying with their tax dollars versus the privacy of the police officers who are being recorded. That's the classic disconnect when it comes to the use of uh, cell phones, smartphones to record police misconduct. I think that without smartphones, we wouldn't have the movement we have today. And so I think the benefit to the public outweighs the privacy interest of individual police officers because they're on the job when they're conducting their official duties. Just like in FOIA requests, anything that happens uh, in a federal agency when they're communicating with the public, most of that is discoverable. I mean, sure, they can redact it. And, uh, you know, we've seen instances where the police don't um, release things like body cam footage. Well, we need to have something uh, to supplement that because there's no particular basis or legal reason or constitutional justification for police to withhold that evidence from the public. And so similar to how you have several cams on TV <laughs> during a TV show recording, you have to have those different angles when we're looking at what's happening in society. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, because in the beginning you mentioned your podcast, uh, we're obviously going to link to it and we're going to plug all of your social media. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about kind of your nonprofit and what you guys focus on, what you do, how did the podcast start? Do you like podcasting? What has <laughs> been your experience? So the, uh, we just earned 501c3 status. We started as a private consulting firm um, back in 2014. Uh, and we're the, you know, we focus on, our mission is to convene diverse policy professionals to defend America's diversity with programs that encourage an inclusive dialogue around technology's impact on society. So we do that through the podcast. We're starting to do it through live events. We had a full day conference scheduled for March 25th at NYU's DC headquarters, which you know, we've had to postpone to September 29th, uh, but we're moving into live events. Uh, and so we want to be a platform, to your point, about 
the left and right having a hard time coming to terms on these issues. We want to create a platform where there can be diverse views under one roof. And especially when we look at racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in the technology public policy profession. I have had, what, 237 episodes so far. And frankly, I haven't had problem finding, a problem finding diverse guests. But every time you go to a live panel discussion, it looks like whoever organized it was hard pressed trying to find people of color because there's maybe one token of person color on the entire person of color on the entire panel. And then if we look at the pipeline for a lot of those positions outside of government, they all start in Congress and the Joint Center for Political and Economic Study Studies did a report a couple years ago or last year on Hill diversity and the lack of it. And now there are efforts to diversify the Hill. But in some sense, maintaining that pipeline has been sort of a proxy to, for the result at least, if not by intention, the result of there being very little diversity and very little, very few of us at the table when it comes to these discussions. So we're creating our own table. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. We want to bring diverse perspectives. We want to give folks a voice. And importantly, we want to validate uh, what people are saying in the discussion and make sure that it's informed by social justice. Because as we can see, the issues we've described before, before is that, per, that we, we're confident that more diverse voices contributing to this conversation will change some of these algorithms and make them more just. That's our hope. I agree with you. And I think for all the horrible things that have happened in 2020, um, the kind of silver lining is that we as a society will never be the same. We, maybe some people are having an awakening for the first time in their lives. The way we have conversations is changing. And I think uh, it can be seen throughout the industry, the industry is changing too. Um, so I think the work you're doing is extremely important um, and you've been doing it for years and you've been building this out. And I think now it's going to really, you know, a lot of people are gonna to come to you and ask you uh, for advice and for recommendations for speakers and things like that. So actually if anyone is listening and you're putting together a panel, Ask Joe because Joe knows everyone in tech policy, um, even people he doesn't agree with, like tech freedom sometimes. Well, I'll leave you with this, Ash. And uh, first of all, to your point about folks uh, and the difficulty of doing these podcasts. I mean, you've been doing a, a fantastic job over the last few years, and I know how much hard, how much work goes into it, and how difficult it is. So, uh, you know, having a podcast, I think, in and of itself, is a is an accomplishment and uh you know shows an incredible amount of effort so thanks for your work as well i don't think i've disagreed with tech freedom um in a while <laughs> thank you since around 2016. <laughs> you know i just want to say that like a lot of people are saying it sounds cliche by now that you know i can't wait till we can get together again you know it's it's so hard to continue to have these zoom discussions um, but I, I, you know, we are in this together and you, 
you know, the, the person you see working across the aisle today on a particular issue, maybe someone you have to work with later on. So be kind to each other. Um, these debates can get heated and sometimes, you know, you have to say what you have to say, but that doesn't mean that we have to treat each other like, I don't know, subhuman. Um, especially here where, you know, we're leading a lot of this discussion. Uh, the uh, tone in Washington has been toxic for a number of years, but especially um, in the past few years. Um, and, you know, it's, up to, it's incumbent upon us to uh, escalate the debate and you know, talk more responsibility about, not just about policies, but about each other. And in terms of where you can find us, you can find us on uh, Facebook at Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Washington Tech, not Washington Tech, Washington Tech, W-A-S-H-I-N-G-T-E-C-H. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Joe Miller, J-D. Awesome. Well, those are great words, and I agree with every single one of them. So we're going to end on that. Thank you so much for joining. Can't wait to have you back. Great. Thanks, Ash. Good to be with you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.